Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Michael Lutz. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. Hi, Cameron. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Ah, good morning. Um, today, we are going to be talking about wordplay and the discourse of video games, analyzing words, design, and play by Christopher A. Paul. This book was published in 2012 by Rutledge, and Christopher Paul is currently uh, something. Um, oh, he's a professor. He's a full professor at Seattle University um, in the Communication and Media Department, and he's written a couple of other books aside from this. I believe this was his first one. Yeah, and then last year he did The Toxic Meritocracy of Games with Minnesota. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. You can actually see the seeds for that in this book. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Paul is kind of. It's funny when someone has like two first names like that, where you're like, "Well, Paul." But, yeah. You know, it's not. It's like I feel like uh, you're I guess, being too informal. Yeah. Same. Same with uh, James last time, I guess. But uh, <laughs> oh, you know James. Um, but uh, but yeah, Christopher Paul is kind of because uh, I'd never read this book before. But when I think of like names in kind of like the important world of game studies, Christopher Paul comes up for me. Because um, it seems like he's at all the conferences generally and has been at the conferences very regularly, like in-game studies for the past decade or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't – this came out in 2012, so it's a little bit later for that kind of wave of, of uh, game studies books that we talk about of like Galloway, Bogost, things like that. But I really do associate Christopher Paul with that like generation, mm-hmm. Mia Consalvo, those people, T.L. Taylor. Um, and I don't know if it's just because, you know, maybe he's a little bit younger, but he was really involved in organization or something like that. But, but in my mind, right, I have this association of Christopher Paul is in that like set of scholars and academics who are doing similar work in, you know, around, you know, sociology of games. I know that he wouldn't say he's doing that, right? Uh, (laughs) In this book, he wouldn't say that that's what he's doing, but that's what I associate him with. Um, The social effect of games Mm -hmm. maybe is more fair. Mm -hmm. No, I think that, yeah, that uh, makes sense. And he's kind of, my sense of him, and I think this is evident in the book as well, is that he's almost like a second half of a generation, right? Because he is, Mm. he's, uh, sort of in this game before I am, right? Like, well before I am, he publishes this book in, like, my first year of grad school, essentially. Um, but he is responding to, uh, like, Bogost in Galloway and kind of the people who I think uh, sort of epitomize, I don't know, whatever we want to call that weird era of, like, late 2000s game studies. Yeah, we should we should coin a phrase for that. Because I'm sure that other people have one, but we should create our own, like, yeah. you know, TM phrase, mm-hmm. and then we'll just start using it all the time. Okay. Uh, do you have anything off the top of your head? This might. Be I a... don't, but okay. no, I'll think about it. Okay. And then, and then I'll spring it on people like two episodes from now. Okay. Good. 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 Great. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, just to get a sense of uh, where where Paul is in this, like, he is responding directly to to Bogost and Galloway, um, among others, uh, and. This entire book, actually, like, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil it for the listeners. I'm going to spoil this book. Um, the The essential premise of this book, right, writ large, is, I would say, you may or may not agree, uh, but I would say, like, the thesis is the ways that we talk about games 
um, are just as important as the ways that games operate for understanding what games are. Uh, and that's sort of specifically responding to um, kind of the, the Bogost, uh, well, I would say more specifically Bogost, there's like a rhetorical through line here of, uh, you know, looking to the procedural rhetoric of the game and figuring out how the game is making meaning kind of on its own terms. Um, and uh, this book is kind of corollary to that because it steps backward and is like, yes, but that's only part of that picture. Yes, I agree. I yeah. think that is the core argument of the book. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, any other things we want to mention before we start talking about the book proper? Or hmm. see, is there any other interesting stuff about Paul? Oh, he got no, his PhD I, I... at U-Minnesota. Yeah, and, and MA, uh, kind of all in a whack, uh, huh. you know, or, or uh, you know, both in one institution, which is interesting. Yeah, no, not that I, I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, other additional information. Uh, maybe another uh, thing to, to point out is that this is a book that I have heard of before, mm -hmm. but not a book that I see cited very often. Mm -hmm. Is that is that the same for you, or? Um, I'm trying to think now if, like, have I seen it cited? I think I, yes, no, I don't think I've seen it cited very often. I know I have seen it cited, um, but probably not very much. Uh, yeah, I think that Shira Chess uses it in Ready Player Two was like, because there's a lot of, there's a lot as, of as we'll talk about. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap, like conceptual overlap, or, um, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it when we get to it in the chapters. But yeah, there's a lot of like shared interest between this and and Chess's Ready Player Two. But but yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of case of you know this being a book in game studies that I am aware of, but not one that I think I guess I'm aware of through it being like in the conversation in the way of like Galloway's gaming or or um, uh, you know uh, raising the stakes, the Chael Taylor book, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Where I know about those books because I see them talked about fairly regularly. Mm -hmm. You know, this is one that when you mentioned it, I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we're going to read that because uh, you know I'm interested in it." But it wasn't like, "Oh, I need to read that because I've read this other book that depended very heavily on it or something." Uh, with I guess that kind of out of the way, uh, we can begin uh, with the introduction. We're Yay. making good time. Uh, <laughs> we are making good time. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so the introduction is actually. We won't start with the introduction. I'll just uh, lay out. <laughs> what I'll do is I'll lay out actually the structure of this book just because it help, it's helpful um, and it'll explain some of the things we're going to do later. So this is a this book is structured in kind of a, a fairly normal way. Uh, we've seen this structure a couple times. The first there's an introduction and then like the first four chapters. Yes, mm -hmm. the first yeah. four chapters are essentially like the method chapters. That's like part one of the book, and that's. Um, all dealing with like wordplay as a practice. Wordplay is, of course, the title of the book, and it's also kind of the method that this book is proposing. Um, and then the second half of the book, which is, uh, is it four more chapters? Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. uh, is um, kind of the case studies, looking at particular games and uh, particular phenomena within these games uh, through the lens of the method laid out in the first half of the book, and then there's a kind of uh, concluding chapter that summarizes a lot of stuff. Uh, so that's what happens here. Uh, the introduction is, of course, where we get kind of the biggest snapshot of the method and what this, what this book is trying to do. And so I will just quote from page two um 
this uh, sort of first definition of wordplay that we get. Uh, quote, wordplay uses the tools of rhetorical criticism to examine various elements of games from the words found within and around them to the design, play, and coding of them. By looking at these elements, wordplay facilitates analysis of how games persuade, create identifications, and circulate meanings. Yeah, yeah, this is important. And, and just to, to slow it down for one second, mm-hmm. let's just slow it way down. Let's spend about 30 to 40 more minutes talking okay. about this one thing. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, this book is, as you're saying, right, it is the proposal of a unique method mm-hmm. for looking at games, and and the cultures around them right Mm -hmm. and so so this it has to do or the expectation i guess is that it it needs to prove why that method like generates or or why the world necessitates a new method right why Mm -hmm. can't we do marxist political economy to get here or why can't we do Roland Barthes style textual analysis or why can't we do like um you know quantitative sociology on it Mm-hmm. What does this give us that other things in the universe don't, right? Mm-hmm. And so so he's actually, I think, drawn a pretty wide... Most methods, I, I think, unless they're like classic big methods like psychoanalysis or like Marxist analysis or something like that, right? They don't try to draw as big of a map as he's drawn here. But but as you're saying, right, he wants to get the the words around games the design of those games and then the way that the play happens within those constraints. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, uh, there's a lot of things going on here and he is very emphatic. Paul is that, uh, so this is one of the ways that he's responding to kind of previous generations of criticism and sort of his immediate predecessors, um, in the field. Uh, he, he is emphatic that, this sort of analysis cannot be limited to the games themselves, which is something that he alleges, and he's not entirely, like, I don't think he's necessarily wrong, right? That um, critics prior to him, scholars prior to him, are very concerned with uh, making uh, sort of arguments or uh, constructing methods of analysis that acknowledge the uniqueness of games as a medium or as a form. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, people who are going to say that, well, really psychoanalysis in its traditional sense or any, basically anything that, um, you can slap onto literature, (laughs) Marxist (laughs) cultural analysis, psychoanalysis, whatever, uh, that stuff does not work, uh, the same way if you're going to, uh, aim it at a video game because video games have all of this other stuff that's going on kind of under the surface. They're not just, uh, texts in sort of the and huge scare quotes here, texts in quote-unquote the pure sense, because there's all this stuff that the person experiencing the the object doesn't necessarily become directly aware of. And so this is where you get people like um, Galloway and Bogost. Uh, I would say probably Bogost more clearly, if only because Galloway is, is so weird in how he writes about these things. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, Bogost saying... Um, you know, this is like games are these kind of persuasion engines, right? They're they're uh, sort of computerized uh, algorithmic arguments, um, and there are things that are happening that are limiting the terms of that argument that the player is not necessarily going to be aware of. And so, this is why we need to like dig into code and see how things are being coded and so on and so forth. Um, 
because we can't just do regular textual analysis of a video game because we'll miss all this stuff. And Paul basically says, yes, this is true. But in kind of uh, zeroing in on games as games, we essentially, like he never, I think, actually uses this word, but we essentially lose the interpretive and discursive communities that exist around games. Yeah, we, we get a little bit here uh, using the language of paratext, right? Mm-hmm. Which Which has that kind of at the bottom, right? That there's this kind of... Uh, expansive material and intellectual culture around a thing, but yeah, I don't. I think I think you're using um, like almost cultural studies language to do something that that Paul is getting around to without mm-hmm. without passing through cultural studies. Weirdly enough, right, right, and so that's so. This is another way of pitching this book's argument, and this is a really weird way of putting it, right? But I think he's trying to cultural studies bogost, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. That's really what he's doing. Um, uh. So this introduction, he lays out wordplay. Um, he signals that he's interested in in rhetoric and rhetorical criticism, which is obviously like sort of the, the most direct connection to what Bogost is doing. Um, and then he sort of defines what rhetoric is and sort of the history of rhetoric as a field. So he defines rhetoric, uh, he's drawing from Campbell and Huxman here, as, quote, the study of what is persuasive. Um, and he sort of outlines how contemporary rhetoric, especially in rhetorical studies, are deeply influenced by kenneth burke who was a a Mm -hmm. rhetorician um i don't know where he's like taught or studied uh but he was oh uh comm departments love love burke they love him uh yeah so burke uh is not to get too deep into the history of rhetoric right because uh I could talk about rhetoric for quite a while because it turns out that rhetoric was really important to people in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, like the, that, there's this whole sort of um, classical history of rhetoric, right? The the rhetoric that is literally like capital C classical coming um, out of like Greek and uh, Roman traditions. Um, people like Cicero, who uh, are very concerned. Actually, Huizinga is is a good uh, touchstone here. Uh, because he talks about this point in time where, you know, rhetoric was essentially how politics happened, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, politics was important people getting together and trying to talk to each other as persuasively as they could about uh, whatever issue was on the table. And this uh, was a really weird, like what might to us seem like a very weirdly diverse field of study because it comes down to things like, what sorts of hand movements is the speaker making? Um, Right. What are the, what are the good little like cliches to trot out and how to trot them out at the right time and then how to subvert them. Right. They, they, they actually take almost a kind of very rationalistic, almost scientific uh, uh, approach to, to thinking about rhetoric. Um, And then in kind of the 20th century, Kenneth Burke comes into the, the rhetorical criticism scene and he, opens things up he talks he he basically manages or not like you know in and of himself but he introduces a way of thinking about rhetoric that expands beyond um sort of just speaking to each other or person to person or spoken communication uh for burke rhetoric becomes a kind of symbolic uh manipulation or like uh sort of exchange that happens in many different ways uh, in many different aspects of culture right uh symbolic is the key term for burke that when people get together 
they are doing all of these symbolic gestures, which may, may be speech, right? Maybe like how their hands are moving and so on. Uh, but the goal essentially is this kind of uh, mode of communication that will induce cooperation among beings. Mm-hmm. So uh, you might compare this to like uh, Austin and speech act theory, right? The way that... Uh, in the 20th century, basically, people become interested in culture as opposed to, like, a specific idea that they have decided is something that culture does. So not just rhetoric as an aspect of culture, but, like, how does rhetoric as a practice inform and construct culture? Yeah, and so just to kind of, like, for people who are are not in the weeds of, like, academia kind of stuff, right, Um, to to pull it back, like, big, big, broad um, ideas here, like, when we're, when we're talking about method here and when Michael's giving this this like really good analysis of, of how rhetoric kind of transforms in the 20th century, how that's working for Paul here is like, if you're a Marxist literary critic at the bottom, like it, your fundamental belief and claim is that is the labor theory of value, right? Like that, that's a math problem at the heart, at the center at the, the, the very fundament of your method. And so then when you get to reading Jane Eyre or whatever, you're going to be at least implicitly referring back to that kernel of truth about your method. And the same thing for like psychoanalysis, right? When you go to read, uh, I don't know, whatever you want, Infinite Jest as a psychoanalytic literary critic, you are going to always have in your mind that there's a thing called the unconscious, right? And that's like a fundamental truth and a rule for psychoanalytic, uh, you know, theory, and that you'll always be able to refer back to that. Mm-hmm. For for Paul here, and for wordplay as a method, th- it's this um, infinite capability of rhetoric to operate as the symbolic exchange that you're saying, Michael, that animates this method. Dude, is that a fair yes summation? Right. So yeah. So the study of rhetoric becomes um, the, the 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 study of learning how the truth is situated and constructed and maintained essentially yeah right um and and so like like for me reading this i i find wordplay very confusing at some some parts like i i you know i it it is a wide ranging word Mm -hmm. (laughs) weirdly enough for a thing that's about like words and how they work uh, it it does a lot of work as a method and it does a lot of work in places that i'm kind of confused about what the work it's doing is but it's because it's remit right like it's boundary that it's drawing about what it can speak to is all of the potential ability to modulate truth in human experience <laughs> so it's pretty big <laughs> yes no and i think um this is this is i think one of the sort of oddities or challenges of this book is that wordplay I can tell you what it is but um I don't think wordplay is the best term for it right (laughs) yeah uh just because wordplay connotes or suggests um a very specific orientation that this really is doing it's doing much much more than looking at words now like he does look at words right this 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 method is interested in words but there is so much stuff that is just beyond words as as we understand them um that i feel like the naming the method wordplay does it something of a disservice uh 
that is, uh, so he talks about how he, after kind of this history of rhetoric, he talks about game studies as a field and does his kind of lit review there, um, and sort of all of these competing models. So mm -hmm. um, a couple of characteristics that he notes are that uh, the various models that are trying to emerge for game studies um, are kind of concerned with making some sort of claim for the specificity or uniqueness of games first and foremost. Um, also that many of these methods are focused on games not as kind of stable objects but as kind of actionable processes or programs. Um, yeah. Another way of thinking about it as, as objects that uh, more explicitly than other types of cultural objects combine the acts of doing and meaning. Um, and then he says there are some, of course, methods that do gesture toward rhetoric, and clearly he means uh, Boghost uh, here. Uh, but then he also says that there are methods that could be enhanced by pulling in rhetorical criticism, but don't. Um, so this is where he is arguing that uh, wordplay kind of comes in, right? It threads uh, this needle. Um, so here is going to be one of my first, maybe weirder tangents during this episode. Uh, so Paul basically makes this allegation. I mean, he's, uh, coming out of Consalvo and Dutton here. Uh, they're talking about sort of the, the weird proliferation of methods around game studies. Um, essentially what he is pulling from them is this claim that, the, the lack of a kind of received method for doing game studies, right? A kind of institutionalized method means that for many scholars, it is difficult to understand video games and why they matter. So like everyone is basically trying to come up with the most uh, sort of effective model for explaining this to other people. Yeah. Um, what I shall say is that uh, in our last episode, we, we were talking, we read, um, Beyond a Boundary by C.L.R. James, and we mm -hmm. kind of mentioned uh, this this speculative project of yours of thinking about a game studies that is uh, that you know pulls in James at the beginning that doesn't just have Huizinga to work on. Mm -hmm. um, it's a game studies study buddies presents what if yes, <laughs> where the the expanded game studies study buddies universe, uh, all of these alternate continuities, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so in in the what if universe, right in in the universe where game studies comes out of CLR James, this conversation is already over. We already know why games matter. Yes, right. because they are shot through with the social. Right. <laughs> um, that would be a fundament then, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that I think is really interesting to think about, is that uh, because this field uh, is kind of rootless in that way, or if like we're going to lay it all at the feet of Huizinga, because Huizinga is not really talking about games, he's talking about play, and he's talking about all sorts of different kinds of play, uh, all of these scholars who are coming in his aftermath are left with this task of basically making Huizinga more directly useful. <laughs> and this is a challenge. However, um, it's already clear for James what, what games are and why they matter, as you say, because they're shot through with the social. And even uh, like the system of the game is important to James, right? Like the way that uh, the rules have changed historically, the ways that the rules have changed in response to different methods of play. But then also, uh, because James is a voluminous reader, right? The the literature that surrounds cricket 
is already pulled in, right? He is already taking as axiomatic that the way we talk about cricket cricket is just as important as cricket itself. Yeah, yes, 100%. And, you know, I did not hit on it only this moment in the way that you're talking about this and making that explicit comparison. That is, in fact, why I think that that James book is so powerful is this kind of what if, is that it is not about play. It's about games, like explicitly, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that rule system management that you're talking about. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that you could, I think there's a really productive reading to put this this book, Wordplay, up with Beyond a Boundary to see like how much territory Beyond a Boundary implicitly covers by mm-hmm. saying, yeah, exactly as you're saying, that, that the discourse and the inter... The discourse around cricket, as well as its intersection with race class imperialism Mm -hmm. the colonialism that that comes from that self-governance after that and the relationship between the the former empire and the kind of the post-colonial state all those different things that that's in the james right Mm -hmm. um in the same way that like you know paul is trying to figure out and obviously these are different use cases right but just trying to figure out you know what does it mean when the designer of a game says something like the word welfare epics Mm -hmm. right and which is i think a really strong chapter in this book that we'll talk about in a minute but uh, but but he he really has to like do a lot of digging and figuring out in this kind of like side citation of game studies so far for him up through you know twenty twelve or whatever because he doesn't find a lot of tools in game studies right for helping do it he's got to invent these tools right but also CLR James already had them right no so that was like sort of a weird experience of reading this book um, was thinking like oh wow like CLR James actually gives us a way like he gave us in the 50s <laughs> a way of making these claims and talking about these things um that essentially we're like this field is trying to reinvent circa 2010 um so one of the one of the last kind of things i want to say about the introduction this is another quote um and i think this actually makes very clear how much um kind of uh, uh or rather how adjacent i should say uh paul and james are here Quote, games help shape contextual forces through the integration of elements to socialize players into particular games and gaming as a whole. But all games are subject to a context beyond their control. Hmm. Right? So, um, this, this to me, uh, seems very much like James. It also sounds a lot like Shira Chess, um, and her idea of designed identity this idea of the ways that uh so for paul the term is socialize right the way people become socialized into being gamers um for chess this is obviously like designed identity um and james doesn't have so much a a specific term for it but he talks it's essentially a kind of um marxist ideological idea of of how people get kind of interpolated um and i wouldn't say he's an altusarian but like how people get kind of interpolated into the the social apparatus yeah i mean his way of addressing that is by just walking through his own personal journey right Right. like at at what points of intersection do, do the family the state the educational apparatus. I mean, he's talking about ISAs, you yeah, know, yeah. and like, and when ISAs run into that, if, if you're curious, if you're reading, you don't know what we're talking about. Uh, you can read, um, just go read the Wikipedia page for all through Um, uh, he also was a murderer. Uh, and was yeah, so, uh, I don't know. That's just like, that's an, that's a weird thing that was going on in, in my head while reading this book was thinking like, Oh, like here's, here's where, like so like paul comes to a thing he's like here's a problem and i'm like oh james solved it 
um, or not really solved it, but like he approached the problem in such a way that it wasn't a problem. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's kind of the introduction, unless you have any other things you want to note there, we can talk about sort of the first chapter, which becomes about socializing gamers. Like what is this process of socialization and what does it mean? Yeah, no, I, the only additional thing I would say is that, that, you know, this is part of the, the push and pull of this podcast, right? Is that what are the founding documents that we find to be so profound? And then what are their effects on the field and what's the shape of the field in 2019 or whenever you're listening to this as the, as the product of history, right? To, you know, to some degree, uh, this is a, now that we're like a year into this, I realize this is a very Marxist kind of project <laughs> <laughs> that we're doing in the sense of like, you know, um, we are looking to specifically trajectories of inheritance uh, mm-hmm. and, and what those mean. But, um, but yeah, I think that, that that's the benefit of looking at these non-canonical books that we've been doing and, that, and that's in quotation marks, but books that are, um, that could have been in the field but aren't um, because it does give us a a good perspective of if for whatever reason you know the vagaries of history had gone a slightly different way and say uh, game studies had not cleaved itself off from sports studies so easily and so swiftly then maybe we would have a little bit of a different shape now Mm -hmm. socializing gamers so yeah socializing gamers um we begin by talking about uncharted 2 Hot off the presses. Hot off the presses. Uh, This is also one of those books where I felt, like, the passage of time so acutely. (laughs) Well, Um, yes. When we start reading, uh, when when you get to the back half of the book, and there are multiple chapters about World of Warcraft, and World of Warcraft Classic just launched this week, like, into full release, where it's like, we are now nostalgically recreating the thing that he is talking about in this book. It was a real, like... Oof, I felt the passage of I felt my skin grow into a fine powdery dust. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh yeah, uh we we begin with kind of our case study of Uncharted 2. Um and what Paul is up to here at the beginning is looking to how someone becomes socialized into being an Uncharted 2 player. Uh what this means, right, is looking at the ads. Uh, sort of first and foremost, uh, looking at um, sort of the the idea of the player as projected by the publisher and and their PR arm, I guess. Um, sort of all of these paratexts, right, is the word that he uses. So not just um, the ads themselves, but even things like the Naughty Dog logo that you see at the beginning of the game when you first boot it up. Um, there is something about that Actually, yeah, that's a good way to put it, right? When when you start a game and you see all of those, uh, in in the same way that like when a movie begins, you see uh, the the logos for the production companies and so on and so forth, um, you are socialized or being socialized into a particular kind of subject position uh, because you accept this convention first and foremost, and two, you come to understand it. Right, you mm-hmm. know who Naughty Dog is. You are learning. You are being taught that this is these are the this is the thing, the entity that made the game you're about to enjoy, um, and that is sort of similar to uh, the ads. The ad that he talks about is uh, how is it? it's like a I don't remember ever seeing this ad, but it's apparently like a young man and his girlfriend, and the girlfriend yes. is like. 
are you going to how does she how does how does she phrase it it's it's are you are you are are you gonna play the movie again tonight or something like that right 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 so like some really really fresh uh 2010s like gamer uh gender essentialism going on here uh where the the young man is going to be the one who's going to play the game uh but shock and awe his girlfriend actually likes to watch him play the game because the game is so movie-like, so cinematic, mm-hmm. um, that uh, suddenly, rather than having just, like, you're the gamer um, and you're going to play this game, it's like, you're the gamer, and by the way, you're a young white guy and you're straight, probably, and you've got a girlfriend, and your girlfriend is even going to like this, right? Your girlfriend is going to become, like, a weird paragamer. Because she is like going to be your your personal let's play audience, yeah, right. Yes, um, and so there's things like that. There's also reviews, um, like game reviews on the online. This is a weird thing that I just want to note. He he quotes extensively from a GameSpot review, but doesn't mention that it's a GameSpot review. Did you notice so this? this? Yes, this happens across this book, yes. and I'm assuming that this is a, this is like a really weird thing to talk about, but yeah, it, it stuck out so much to me as well, I wanted to bring it up too, that this is something in communication studies very particularly, which is this citational mechanism where like the footnote is doing all of the work. Um, I, I've recently gone through like edits for a, a chat book chapter that I have coming out uh, on Dark Souls, and it's with people, the people who are running your firma communications department. And this is just like the standard of the way they do it. And it, the, so I got feedback that was like, "Hey, you can really reduce your word count if you just went and removed like all the names of people that you're engaging with." And I was like, on one hand, okay, that, that I guess that makes sense if that's what the field does. But on the other hand, that is so far away from like disciplinarily what I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that I've been trained that, I mean, I didn't do that, um, because I, I have a particular way that I write that comes from, you know, a decade of, <laughs> of being in my own field. But, um, but yes, that certainly is just like a thing, I guess. I don't know. It, it, yeah. it strikes me as weird too. You know, it, it strikes me as weird and I'm not like, it's good that you pointed out that this is probably a disciplinary, dis- disciplinary thing, uh, because it, to me, right, as someone who is deep 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 in the you know the hermeneutics of suspicion um (laughs) it yes it strikes me as a strangely uh sort of compliant uh way of engaging with what are essentially like marketing materials Mm. um like quoting a GameSpot review from 2011 and not saying like that this is a GameSpot review um speaking of rhetoric right like a GameSpot review is going to talk about a game and is going to highlight aspects of a game um in a very specific way but without noting that it's a GameSpot review honestly it could read like another critic talking about um how how this how uncharted 2 works as a game and how seamlessly it blends this that and the other um which is in some ways right i think that's kind of interesting because it 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 levels the playing field but also like it to me at least right it matters if it's a like game review or a scholar so i don't know yeah no 100 percent. and i i think that's something that maybe people in our milieu and especially like at our time right now are maybe a lot more sensitive to Mm -hmm. is that 
you know, especially me, like being in the kind of position that I'm in of, of academia and then writing quite a bit about games and writing about games in different ways, whether that is news or whether that is over review or whether that's like a longer critical piece after the review period or whatever, right? When when you can say different types of things about the game mm-hmm. um, or, or you have the, you know, there's a, a, basically when you write about a game after the review period is over, um, there is an expectation that the audience that you're writing for just has a lot more knowledge about the game, and so you can kind of do different stuff. That's what mm-hmm. I mean about that. Not like someone's not allowing you to write about it. Right. Um, but uh, but but anyway, right? Like there is a, a way that that Paul analytically will say like academic or, or scholarly or whatever, and press or critics or whatever. He he mains, maintains that on the analytic level and that like phraseology shows up all throughout the book but you're right when he's citing from these things this just becomes like the world of players mm-hmm. right or or the world of critics or whatever um and yeah all all writing about games and all discourse about games is not equal and if if you know if i have kind of like a wedgie kind of criticism of the book it does seem that like hold on hold on what does wedgie mean here? <laughs> oh, it just it just be like like you know pushing pushing a wedge into the okay, thing and kind okay. of trying I to make draw sure you're like, if, if I wanted to give Chris Paul a wedgie, here's what I do. <laughs> I would never I would never attempt to give Chris Paul a wedgie. Chris Paul, you're safe. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm cutting a WWE promo against him. <laughs> Chris Paul, I'm coming for you. I'm giving you a wedgie. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, but no, you know if I if I'm pushing that, it's the the. When we talk about the discourse around games and like the words that that um, transform games, and it, what Deleuze and Guattari would call an immaterial transformation of of the uh, assemblage of the game, um, when I'm looking, uh, there there are different qualities of words that do that. And so when Jeff Kaplan says something about a game. Um, Chris Paul's very good about saying that, like, Kaplan uh, doing that says something to players, which then creates this kind of uh, circuit of culture. When reviewers say something, it creates some other cult, uh, circuit that happens, too. Um, but even within reviewers, critics, all of that, there are, I think, fine gradations of the way that that operates. And maybe in 2012, that's not as operative. But now, I don't think you could make a similar claim. And I don't think that anyone could like cite the claims from this book without some severe and, and interesting uh, changes around, say, YouTube versus written criticism, mm-hmm. right? Um, the way that an average YouTuber is going to be talking about these games is way, 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 way different. And the kind of rhetoric they're going to be using to talk about these games is way, 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 way different than the way that a reviewer in, on any website, basically, is going to be talking about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, I, so I, yeah, I think it's really good for people, if you want to pick up this book and use it, um, I think that's a place to really think through... Um, about the differences between 2012 and 2019, at least, mm-hmm. um, to get there. That's a long tangent that we had about this, but it's a good tangent to have. Yeah. Um, so that's good. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're we're back up to par, I think. We're at like 40 minutes in, and we're only on chapter one. So That's right. That's right, job. y'all. That's, yes. the, that's, the, that's the study buddy's promise. Um, <laughs> so a couple of other things that he talks about in terms of socializing. We already talked about sort of uh, conventions that people become used to in playing games, um, watching other people play games, being advertised to. Uh, he mentions online walkthroughs as really important. Um, another one of these paratexts. Uh, so these then, you know, of course, like, uh, weirdly enough, let's see, this is 2012. So like Dark Souls is just getting ready to come out or has just come out. 
and I yeah, feel Dark like Dark Souls is 2011, right? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think so. So like I feel like really like Dark Souls is is a great example but not one that can be used in this book because of timing reasons, but like the the sort of ways that um online walkthroughs and sort of theory crafting in that way became centralized in certain aspects of of games discourse right is a really great example of how you get socialized into being a souls-like player right reading these walkthroughs reading people's builds so on and so forth um yes my chapter on dark souls is literally about this and i wish <laughs> i'd read this book before before we were very very deep in edits where i can't change anything but uh-huh. yeah it's okay i'll get a footnote in there yeah so um he talks about that um, he mentions, again, because it's 2012, we talk about uh, Facebook games and how they're constantly, like, urging you to invite other people to play, uh, which is its own kind of socialization, right? Um, like, it, oh, like literally socialization, like, go interpolate more people for me. Uh, yeah. And uh, just another thing that I think notes... Uh, kind of the passage of time here's here's a line on that that stuck out to me the first fundamental concept is socializing players into a compulsive need to check into the games and keep checking into the games there's not a lot of uh analysis beyond that um of that particular tendency and i feel like that has become much more uh centered in in games criticism because uh, we even later actually in the next chapter i think we'll talk about addiction discourse uh which is definitely sort of changed from how it's been situated in this book and then he talks about eve online which like yeah you need to be socialized into eve online that's the way of yep. it <laughs> um, and and it actually uh, what i find interesting about the eve online uh discussion too right is he says that it's like it does not have a uh a learning curve it has a vertical learning curve yeah which is which is funny um but but he says th- that's precisely why it's such a social game is that you need someone to tell you what to do because it like is torture to actually play yeah um no, it's like, yeah, so he says, uh, if players are interested in EVE and do their own due diligence, a substantial portion of the EVE community will bend over backward to provide new players with the information needed, etc., etc. Yeah. Um, so, so so these are all mechanisms mm-hmm. for socializing. Like, these are all ways that games and games culture, um, through design, through these paratexts, all these different things, turn you into a particular kind of gamer. Right, mm-hmm. like we agree on that. Um, how does this have? What does this have to do with wordplay? That's a great question. I don't think this is a problem with the book. I think this is a problem of whatever my expectations are about this method and how it works. You mm-hmm. know, I, I don't. I don't necessarily. I think that this is like a thing that is coherent, but I don't understand how wordplay is involved in this. Or like how we would then use the word wordplay to do this. Because what we end up getting, this is on page um, 38. This is the last page of the chapter. Um, says, this is the very end. He said, wordplay is about who we are and how we play games, which is tied to how words and design socialize us into play. However, wordplay also depends on how uh, who we see playing games, which is framed by the discourse about how we have seen video games as kids' toys. And so that leads into the next chapter. But that first sentence, wordplay is about who we are and how we play games, which is tied to how words and design socialize us into play. So just does any analysis of words and, and design necessarily using the wordplay methodology? 
it sort of seems that way. <laughs> you and I are kind of in, in agreement here. Um, wordplay uh, sets up sort of an idea, and I, you know, and maybe. I was going to say, maybe it's because I'm a lit person, right, coming out of a lit background, uh, but it seems like you had a very similar experience of what exactly is going... Honestly, I expected something much closer to the insulin book that we read. Yeah. Right? That was, like, very particular about, like, how language works in a game mm -hmm. or around games. Like, looking, like, doing real, like, linguistic analysis. Um, and I think there's a lot of implicit language here, of course, because people are talking and communicating. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Naughty Dog logo is not in and of its Like, there are words there, right? But it is not in and of itself a word. Um or, like, walkthroughs are certainly made up of words, uh, but we don't really get a rhetorical analysis of a particular walkthrough, or maybe necessarily characteristics of walkthroughs or things like that, the conventions of them. Um, we're just sort of introduced to them, and then they're tied into kind of these socializing mechanisms. Yeah, I, I think that's a... I, I'm, I'm glad that you are, are drawing that picture that way, because I guess that's what I'm missing in the thing, is, <laughs> like, what are the... And maybe it's also because of, you know, I'm not a lit person, but I come from a similar background and then like of forms of analysis, right? Where it's like, if I am in my own work, right, in my disciplinary training, if I'm trying to say something that an image does, I have to like prove that through mm -hmm. like walking through that. And in the example of the Uncharted um, advertisement, I get that. Like, I understand how that works. Like, that makes sense to me, and that makes sense to me that that would be wordplay because it is this combination of images and implied play and words that all kind of cohere together to tell you how to be a particular type of player, right? And how to treat other people in your house as other kinds of players, which is also important mm -hmm. too, it seems like, that social mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the, the you know, just the existence of the 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 naughty dog logo right like i immediately think of the vast amount of like visual culture study that we would need to apply to that to begin to understand how it works or even just like you know what the wjt mitchell style what do pictures want right like what does the mm -hmm. naughty dog uh logo want um and what does it demand of me as a as a viewer or an interactor or someone on the edge of its rhetoric or the receiving end of its rhetoric and i just don't I, I, I have a hard time seeing how wordplay explicitly gets us there rather than implicitly gets us there, which is, I, I, I never got through that in this book, sadly. Like, I never got through it mm -hmm. to figure out exactly what the boundaries for wordplay are. And maybe that goes back to the method stuff I was talking about a minute ago of, like, he, he did create a method that, like, that, that analyzes all truth claims on Earth. So, so, yeah. you know, I, you know, maybe sometimes things are, are big enough that you don't have to, but I, I really struggled with it by the end of this chapter of like, I, I'm having a hard time drawing the boundaries of what wordplay is as a method. Same. Uh, and then the second chapter, uh, which is video games as kids toys. And you've already mentioned that this is mm -hmm. where, where we're going, um, has something of the same, well, it does a little bit better, but it also has something of the same issue, uh, because in in a in a sense, this is a companion chapter to the previous one. How are game gamers socialized? Um, and this chapter is at answering the question: Why do people think of video games as kids' toys? 
right? Like, what is what is going on here? Um, so one of the things that is actually, I think, really important to Paul, uh, because this will come up in multiple uh, chapters uh, going forward, he's interested in uh, places where, like, interpretive communities come into conflict, um, uh, whether that's, like, developers and designers versus players. Um, and in this case, it's whether it's, like, gamers versus everyone else. Um because he runs through kind of the the history of consoles, right? Uh, games start as these like really weird oddities that are coming out of government funded labs. Um, eventually, we get them in uh, bars, right? They're kind of adult ish pastimes um, as we get arcade machines. Uh, then we get the Atari home systems, uh, sort of the the movement to games as kind of like entertainment for children um and this really gets solidified in his account by nintendo who actually in in contrast to atari um specifically market the nes as a toy not as a game system because the game uh like bubble had burst so badly that no one wanted to buy a home gaming system um but if it was a toy for your kids that's fine uh and then, of course, there's the associated moral panic and addiction discourses. Um, there's an extremely long block quote from Dr. Phil. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of he, he, he goes through uh, also Provenzo. Um, I don't remember Provenzo's first name, but his like weird uh, statement to Congress talking about how like how horrible games are for children. Um, yeah, Provenzo, I'm pretty sure, is the one... Um uh who wrote the book that's like nintendo games are racist and sexist yeah and it's like, well that's not it's not incorrect i guess yeah, yeah. video kids I'm, making sense of nintendo eugene provenzo yeah eugene provenzo um yeah like his entire thing is like oh these games are racist and sexist and they are like uh therefore a moral like rot in society um <laughs> They're, they're going to... And actually, one of my favorite things that happens in this chapter is... Uh, Paul reminds me of something that I had completely forgotten about was... So, talking about um, games for kids, right? Uh, Nintendo comes out. They're like, hey, folks, like, I know Atari really screwed things up. We just have this little toy that we want your kids to have. They, they'll, they're going to ask for it for Christmas. And it's for kids. It's for kids. Love kids. Love video games. Um and that worked, right? Like, it was wildly successful for Nintendo. The The tension, of course, that this installed, however, was that now games were kids' toys, and one, uh, kids started growing up. Uh, two, other types of uh, players that were not Nintendo start entering uh, the, the game environment, right? We get uh, Sega and Sony and so on. Um, and uh, suddenly we start, like, suddenly there's an audience, like an older audience, for different types of games, sort of ma more mature types of games, but also games are still kids' toys. So then we get the introduction of the ESRB's rating system, except no one who is not already playing games really seems to understand that it exists and what it means. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then we get to Mass Effect, Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, which is, of course, an M-rated game, meaning it's for mature audiences. You got to be at least seventeen. But uh, oh my gosh, there's a sex scene in that game, Cameron. Um, this this block <laughs> quote. Wait, it is a block quote, right? Yeah. 
Oh, yes. Okay, so this is yes. Kevin McCullough. I want to read this. <laughs> and I want to, like, we should just flag, right? This is, like, uh, like Breitbart-level, like, conservative, wild, right-wing bullshit. Yes. That, sort like, as it existed prior to the present moment when it learned how to be online, and when it was still just, like, really fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I actually think this article was online, but he, McCullough was a, or I guess maybe still is, a, like, a talk radio person. So it's, yeah, like, yeah. the, you know, the, uh, the ancient era of uh, people being bad. Okay, so in the editorial, McCullough asked campaigning presidential candidates to take a stand, quote, on the new video game that one company is marketing to 15-year-old boys, it's called Mass Effect, and it allows its players, universally male no doubt, to engage in the most realistic sex acts ever conceived. <laughs> one can custom design the shape, form, bodies, race, hairstyle, breast size of the images they wish to engage, and then watching crystal clear LCD, 54-inch HD clarity as the video game persons, in quotation marks, hump in every form, format, multiple gender-oriented possibility they can think of. And this is like the, a nightmare scenario for these people. Right. And it's so, it's so hilarious because the actual sex scenes in Mass Effect are just... Their broadcast television, like, primetime evening drama quality. Yeah. Right? You see some skin, and you see these, like, sort of stiffly animated wooden mannequins kind of, like, knock into each other. Yeah. Um, but he presents it as if, like, Mass Effect is nothing but a sex simulator. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, then he... And then, of course, he, like pulls in kind of the violence uh, debates around this time as well. And uh, the the through line that Paul recognizes, and I actually think there is probably some really interesting, there's more interesting work to be done here, um, is that for these uh, these people, this rhetorical community, so people like McCullough and um, sort of the, 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 the moralistic worry warts or whatever, uh, the issue is always like... Kids are playing these. Yeah. It's always children, right? There is no audience for these other than children. Even when they can be, like, even if you explain to them, like, no, there are adults playing them, here's this rating system, blah, 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 blah. No one's playing these things but kids. Um, and Paul essentially argues that this is kind of, it, it's a rhetorical artifact, right? It's it's a testament to the success of Nintendo's marketing, essentially. Mm. Uh, that... Um, there is still, at the time of this writing, a popular idea of who the the rhetorical audience for a game is. Um, and that is in and of itself, right? Like I think that's I think there's more interesting work to be done here precisely because, like, what does it mean for uh, you know the I'm, I'm thinking of Lee Edelman here, right? Yeah. Like for the child to be the thing that is threatened by the game. Well, I, what I think is interesting here, too, though, is that, that we don't really get... A, if this is a rhetorical community, like you're pointing out, right? It's a rhetorical community that really, I don't think, is organized nearly as much around the child as, as we think. It's really that it's located around just 
panic that the way of life that we experience, and this is something that still goes on because Fox News is like the big cited kind of source here after McCullough because they really did push this kind of Mass Effect narrative. And right, the the entire mechanism of Fox News, and I think even if you like Fox News, you have to recognize this, right? It's that uh, society is changing in some way that we don't like, and we need to push on that as hard as we can, and we need to rehearse over and over again what kind of unique violence is being done to you and your home because of that societal change, whatever it is, right? And that mm -hmm. has tended more and more, somehow, somehow this has occurred, more and more conservative <laughs> over the years. Um, but I think that's that basic principle, is, you know, is just part and parcel of that method. And so to me, what's interesting about this is that there's not really a discussion about that, right? That, that this is just part of like a larger um, uh, cultural panic that is situated around these issues. And I think what what's, bothers them as much as sex for kids is it's like sex with aliens, right? You could, you can have any hairstyle you want. You could have any right. race you want. I, I think that I don't think that that's like a mistake, right? Being put in no, there. It's not just right. It's not just that it's like digital pornography, but it's that it's customizable. Yes, and I think that there's <laughs> right, something going on there too. That uh, you know, I I imagine that since Paul has kind of gone into that, uh, you know, the toxic meritocracy of games looks at some of that that um, rhetorical community again. I wonder if maybe that's in there. I've only read parts of that book. Um, so, but anyway, that's just a, another little piece of it too, that I would love to see more research on is, is it, is it really about the child here or is it really about something that the child just happens to stand in for sometimes, which is what Edelman would say too. Right. Right, right, right. Um, so there's that. Uh, and then because it's 2012, we in this chapter talking about the Wii and how the audience for games is shifting. Or like rather, how the people who are making games and making consoles are taking steps to show the aging and changing audience of games in their marketing materials. I really wonder, and this is like a, a legitimate and actual thing. Because I don't think we have much to say about this this part. Mobile games appeared, Wii games appeared, it fundamentally, on, on some level, changed the shape of games. This is something we've already seen in a bunch of books, and it's in a lot of books from this time period. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know if, if we even need to walk through the argument, because I don't find it you know, particularly unique here. But no. I, I do wonder, and I don't know of anyone who's done work on this, of, did this happen? Like, mm -hmm. did the dem demographics of games change? in a significant way after the rise of mobile gaming and we I guess it depends on how you're going to define gaming. I, I mean, for sure, right? Like, I, right. I mean, I guess that's the thing, right? Did, did, because I know that we have things like, you know, almost right at a 50-50 split or sometimes even more women playing games than men um, in our kind of like industry metrics, right? And, you know, I, I think there's an open question for me, at least, is that just better counting? Do we just count more people as players now than we did before? Or did the demographics mm -hmm. change, right? Did, did right. more people enter into the field who were not players before? And I just, I don't know of actual work on that, that finite kind of counting issue um, that's not industrial analysis that has that problem of counting built into it. I don't know of academic work on it, which would actually address that problem. If people know of that, please send that along. I would love to read it. Yeah, let us know. Um, 
Otherwise, uh, we can move on to the next chapter, which is called Talking Game Design. Yeah, so Talking Game Design, this become, this is the chapter that's about basically how do uh, game developers and designers talk with the player base? How does the player base uh, interact with uh, designers and developers? And sort of what... Uh, channels of information it, like how do these channels of information come to exist um and how do they influence each other uh so one of the first examples is he talks about uh uh the mmo um the old republic star wars the old republic uh and how when that launched of course it had like community like there were forums community managers um like apparently there were podcasts uh, that that were dedicated to to the old republic uh you know, sort of ancillary uh, marketing materials that are also, like, very specifically aimed at a dedicated player base. Mm -hmm. um, then also, like, reviews are one of these ways. Like, when people, like, uh, games journalists or players, like, on Metacritic will leave bad reviews in order to let uh, designers and developers know that they do or do not like something about a game. Um and then there's of course player developed content mods. Uh, he talks about Little Big Planet, Minecraft, and Spore. Um, and I think it's really interesting that of of those three, only Minecraft really really stuck with it. Everything else kind of fizzled. Yeah. Well, um, Little Big Planet's still around, just in like okay, it's dreams turned into dreams. Yeah, it did turn into dreams. Um, so yeah, there there are all these other. All these like particular ways that uh, players and developers might have some kind of back and forth, uh, but then the question becomes how how does this how how does this operate on the games themselves, right? How do the games themselves show the marks of this back and forth? And his first big example of this is um, COD Blops, Call of Duty Black Ops. Uh, which was released... When was that released? Like, 2009? Mm, yeah, somewhere like that. Two. Let me look real quick. 2010. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, 2010. So, uh, Cod Blops comes out, um, and this is another thing that I had, like, completely forgotten about. Uh, but Cod Blops comes out, and there is a bit of a controversy about this game because it does not have dedicated servers. Um like most multiplayer uh, shooters up until that point. Uh, instead, it has a peer-to-peer -peer matching service, um, and the gamers hated this. Gamers hate it. This is another one of those places where the book shows its age, and this is, like, not Paul's fault at all. It's just, like, living post-2014, um, when he quotes the UK gamer advocacy group Gamer's Voice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, which is just, I don't know if Gamer's Voice is still around. I don't know what they're up to. I don't really care. You just, you know, the sorts of people who are part of this and like what they did in the fall of 2014. Yeah. You know it. Um, and he quotes them, uh, basically taking, uh, um, the publisher to task and it's very much internet, like that era of internet. How dare you, sir? You crass prophet mongering like you're taking this away from the true gamers because right for whatever reason it's more cost effective for you to have this peer-to-peer -peer matching service rather than let us have dedicated servers and run our own games and this interferes with the quality of play blah 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 um and then uh we get uh the response from uh the developer or publisher uh that is extremely 
I mean, it's extremely expected, right? If you have spent any time in uh, games sort of currently, like you, you are familiar with this method of responding to some sort of community outcry, which is like, uh, he says, we are very, uh, you know, sort of like we are very glad that we have such a such an invested in vocal fan base, right? Mm-hmm. We welcome <laughs> um, your comments. We're glad that, right? We love we love that Call of Duty players care so much about their games and the games that they play. Um, however, we should also not forget all of the people who played and didn't complain, essentially. And uh, Paul explicitly compares this approach to Nixon's silent majority. Yeah, uh, yeah, which is a weird kind of move. I feel like, but it, it is a weird move because it, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael. Please mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. But the silent majority are all the people who are racist, who didn't do anything and just kind of had to sit through the civil rights movement. Yes. Okay. Just making sure. Yes, that's that's what the silent majority. <laughs> yeah, is. I'm just I'm I'm just trying to orient myself to the thing, right? Which I get what that's saying, right? Is that that mm-hmm. they you get to use them however you want to use them because they didn't voice their mm-hmm. opinion, so they they get to stand in for whatever you want to stand stand in for. Um, but yeah, that, that is an interesting pull. Mm-hmm. And again, like it's one of those accidents of history where, like in in twenty nineteen post GamerGate, that just that feels so different. <laughs> but so does this statement. Um, I really like this. So this is from Josh Olin. I think it's the person. yeah. That's jo- it's Josh Olin is the so uh, who's the com- head community manager for them. And this is mm-hmm. the thing that really like I I just can't I can't think of someone uh, of a PR person or a community manager saying something like this in twenty nineteen and not. And not having to quit their job, basically. I, and and I think Ooblets the other day is a very similar case of this. Of someone speaking of a dev, of a dev team and the dev team responding to to negativity in fairly direct and serious ways, as if they were talking to adults and then being just you know brutalized for it on the internet, right? But so Owen says. Mm-hmm. Personally, as a community manager who lives in the media or social media world every day, and this is 2010, this is nine years ago, social media world every day, I think the social culture of video games is moving in a more negative direction as technology and social media continues to grow. Rather than growing with it, the trend seems to be devolving. More and more gamers seem to, seem to forget what this industry is all about. It's a creative industry, the most creative form of entertainment in existence. Too many developers who try new things are getting burned by the pundits, quote-unquote, and angry entitled fans who look to be contrarian, sometimes simply for the sake of being contrarian. The only thing this attitude aims to achieve is, is stunt that creativity and innovation even further, which is something that no rational gamer looking to be entertained would want to do. Mm-hmm. And like he'd be he oh, burned at the stake. Y- yeah, and I don't necessarily agree with all of that. Like there's a lot of stuff going here like like rational gamers mm-hmm. and the fact that people who like don't enjoy <laughs> the things. underscore rational <laughs> underscore <Yes>. gamer. <laughs> exactly. But even the thing that like I don't think people who complain about things are are necessarily like just entitled fans who want that thing to change, right? I think there are a lot there's mm-hmm. lots of like real criticism. And so I I'm just I'm saying that to say that like I think you could wield this as a bludgeon against people who say, for example, that World of Warcraft has race problems in it, right? 
I think mm-hmm. the statement could be used as, as a bludgeon against those people as much as it is about people complaining about uh, peer-to-peer servers or whatever, right? The lack of dedicated servers. Um, so, so yeah, I don't. I, I think this is maybe too broad of a statement for me to like 100% agree with. But yes, you're right. They, these people, if you if you said this today, all of which is like fairly agreeable in the sense of like developers make a thing. It's a creative medium. It's not going to work out for everybody. You know, sorry that that's happening. Uh, that that would not be statable today. Uh, you you would be harassed out of your job. And that, that, I think, says something about the culture of games that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that there's that. Um, and the chapter actually ends, I think, on our first big WoW reading. Because WoW comes back again and again in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically, uh, just to mention it, he talks about uh, Tol Barad, which was a broken PvP environment that came out with um, the, the Cataclysm expansion. Uh and I'm going to be upfront. I don't really like WoW. I actually don't really like most uh, um, MMOs. Uh, so because it like because of things that happen when he's talking about WoW Cataclysm here uh, in in the PvP environment, where like people are talking about, so it's essentially like a capture the flag kind of uh, PvP environment, where like two different sides have to um, take over an area and like respectively take over and defend an area. Um, and the players got very upset because because of the way it was designed, um, basically it was impossible for the attacking side to really win mm-hmm. or to like win in a way that was worth it. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, they the 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 WoW team implemented a uh, kind of rules change, but that actually resulted in not like sort of the the thing that they wanted, which was this very dynamic active PvP environment. It resulted in a um, weird situation where the players all realized, like, oh, if we just take turns capturing and losing this, right, like, winning and losing this game, then we're all just going to, like, get the maximum reward. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> And that's more efficient than actually playing the game. And so then they right. nerf it from there to be like, all right, well, we that doesn't make... That's bad because that discourages play. So let's, like, find the happy bad medium between that to like not give you enough good stuff to make it worth playing um but not too <laughs> little to keep you from playing at all so yeah. it's just yeah uh it just it reminded me of back when uh halo 3 came out and there was like some weird achievement you could only get with uh the big laser weapon whose name i don't remember uh but it was so difficult to actually just get in in the normal course of multiplayer play that you could join games where everyone would just like line up and then take turns like one person would get the gun and like kill everyone with it and then the next person would like when they respond would take it and everyone else would line up and then they'd kill everyone <laughs> i remember doing that that was that that's actually fun times. I don't know why the WoW players didn't like uh, playing the game in an absolutely wrong way because that's really fun for me. Yeah, that's good. Um, but again, yeah. so just to just to to pull it back here because these are the methods chapters. Yes. What's wordplay here, Michael? Great question. Again, so this is this is where I keep running into the wall, right? Like, and I mm-hmm. think that he has like at the end of every chapter, like, oh, this is what is wordplay here. But um, actually, that might not even be here in this one. Oh yeah. Um, all of these are examples of, this is on page 67 all of these are examples of how players are crucial to show how the discords of video games unfold 
Wordplay illuminates how the context for the discourse of video games is shaped by many different elements and players are a crucial component of how the discourse surrounding games is built. I, so players, I, so, so wordplay in this instance is like the, the world of the game is responsive to players and how those players get managed by the designers through design and like discourse. Yeah, I, I, I mean, like, if you take the idea that uh, rhetoric is is above all a kind of like, just maybe this is part of the problem. Um, rhetoric is uh, taken to mean just communication in general. Yes, right, because what comes so obviously there are disagreements in in this chapter between uh different interpretive communities um but we never really get into what is being persuaded here or how people are persuading each other yeah i think that's right it, yeah the right. very act that they're doing something is evidence that they have been persuaded or that rhetoric has worked i guess right mm -hmm. right so yeah um that's one of the things uh that happens and arguably maybe a similar thing happens in the next chapter which is consoles read rhetorically and this is our final method chapter so the idea of reading consoles rhetorically here does get a little confusing uh because there are four aspects paul uh says to consoles so these are here are the four four rhetorical components of a console one where do you put it um two how do you play it three how has it been marketed? And four, what are consumers supposed to do with it? This fourth one is going to make sense, I promise. Um, but I was very confused with it at, here at the beginning because he doesn't really unpack what it means. It's just like, what are consumers supposed to do with the console? And I'm like, it pl play play games on it? What? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you know what? I, you know what? I was very frustrated with this, but now that you're putting it that way, that does make a lot more sense to me. Yeah. I was very confused um, about why we were talking about VCRs. Or not, we yes. weren't talking about VCRs. We were talking about uh, uh, CD-ROMs, sorry. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and then Blu-rays and then uh, DVDs. Right. Uh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So essentially, right, like, so where do we place consoles? And he, he recaps some of the earlier history that I've already talked about. Um, games growing out of uh, labs into uh, adult situations. That is not the right word, but like bars and things. Um, then to the Atari. So how do games move into the home? And now most consoles are home consoles. Um, then how do you play them? Um, that's sort of the... Uh, question like so atari does not have a whole lot of quality control um everyone's making games for it all sorts of games they're all messes uh there are so many weird atari games and then the, the crash happens nintendo comes in and they are very very particular about uh standardizing what paul calls modes of play um so this is like sort of the, this is still, right, this kind of Nintendo design ethic. Everything is very, like, if you have played a Mario game, you know how to play a Mario game. And if you play a new Mario game, it will teach you how to play a Mario game. Um, 
uh also like the he mentions the the weird accessories that came along with the early nintendo that kind of helped uh sell it as a as a toy so he talks about the rob robot uh that and the power glove uh which both i think only had two games that were compatible with them Mm -hmm. uh and sort of but he also like notes there right this is this in some ways these are uh premonitions of the way that nintendo will uh really seize the day on motion controls going forward um so there's that right like what is the standard mode of play like what are you like where so not only where are you playing it in the home but what are you doing with this thing you're playing a mario or you're playing with your weird little robot peripheral or whatever um then looking into the marketing he starts with kind of the history of intellivision versus atari how did intellivision try to um differentiate itself from from the atari vcs uh and then this gets compared to the way that the playstation differentiates itself from nintendo once sony enters the market and uh of course like he mentions like final fantasy 7 uh as as a key text here because of the marketing marketing for it is showing a lot of the pre-rendered cutscenes. um you know, making the case for the PlayStation as a kind of operatic, visual, multimedia, a more dramatic experience than almost anything you're going to get from Nintendo at this time. This is where they're talking about Final Fantasy VII, right? Is that in here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's good because it says, uh, gosh, there's a quotation here somewhere where he's like, or where the marketing is like, if we tried to put this on a cartridge... It cost. It would cost twelve hundred dollars. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so, oh yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, the these television is on page eighty. These television ads were matched with a print effort featuring the image of a massive cannon from the game spread over two pages in the text. Someone please get the guys who make cartridge games a cigarette and a blindfold. <laughs> Which who that is on one hand incredibly bleak. On the other hand, mm-hmm. whoever wrote that ad copy is a genius. Yes. Like, that is operating on a level that is, like, beyond the pale of what I, I would think would be in marketing. Um, yeah. And then uh, splashed across the top. That's across, across the top. That, but then also it says, uh, possibly the greatest game ever made is available only on PlayStation. Good thing. Mm-hmm. If it were available on cartridge, it'd retail for about $1,200. <laughs> so and, and, so when we talk about Final Fantasy 7 too this is something that I'm, I'm harping on all the time we like Final Fantasy 7 because it is an interesting game and it does have interesting parts to it that's true we also like Final Fantasy 7 because we were sold it in such a spectacular and bizarre way with a lot mm-hmm. of money right no Final Fantasy 7 was an event yeah right and it constructed its audience which is what paul is arguing here right like not only did final fantasy 7 construct final fantasy 7's audience but it constructed sony's audience yeah. right sony's audience is the people who play the playstation are the people who want this um, they want gaming to go to the next level right they want something that is bigger and louder and uh sort of more uh sweeping and it's aspiring to more than nintendo has ever hoped for yes um so there's that Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh and that's how you know uh consoles like 
rhetorically get their audiences, right? Because the marketing constructs them. Um, and then the ending is, you know, what do we do with with these consoles? Which I said was sort of the confusing one. Uh, but actually what he's talking about here is... Uh, building off of Sony, the way that consoles increasingly have become uh, entertainment devices rather than just things that play games. So you can stream on a console, you can surf the internet, you can uh, play some music, you can play your DVDs or Blu-rays, so on and so forth. Um, and that changes things as well, because if you're a person, I guess, who uh, wants a, a console that can do more things, things that don't just play games or like things that aren't just playing games, right? That is acknowledging to some extent that you have an entertainment life that nevertheless, the the game company can some in some way still serve. Yeah, 100%. And this is only accelerated from here, right? I mean, now yeah. I would say my, my PlayStation 4 gets as much use as like a streaming box as it does as a game, or maybe even like just raw hour time, more use as a streaming box than it does as a game mm -hmm. console. Um, so yeah, that's sort of the end of, of the method, and we are at an hour and a half. Good job, us. Great job. So uh, the second half of this book is the case studies, and we're not going to talk through all of them, one, because we are running long, which is par for the course for us, <laughs> um, but also, uh, as in most cases with books with case studies, uh, discussing the case studies mostly just becomes an exercise in summarizing the case studies and being like, yep, I find that persuasive, or hmm, here's something else that I thought about, uh, which is maybe not the most productive use of our time here. We've learned so... our lesson. <laughs> because we've done it enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about, I think, the first case study chapter, which is called uh, GTA Humor and Protagonists. Um, Cameron, what do you think about this chapter? I think it's interesting. It is a overview, basically, of, like, what does Grand Theft Auto do in the culture, right, in a general sense? And it doesn't stick to one of the games, which I find interesting. Like, as a chapter, it, it really covers Grand Theft Auto, like, original for the PC and the original PlayStation, all the way up to Grand Theft Auto 4, Nico Bellic, Cousin. All of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it covers the entire franchise. Yeah, and and really makes an effort, I think, to to show how eat. It, this is, I think, where wordplay really shows up. Maybe maybe is what I, why I should say I like it so much. Or it really shows its ability to speak across different objects because we know how Grand Theft Auto is related, right? Because they're all in the series. They're all in some ways building off the one that existed before. But what Paul is doing here is using wordplay, uh, by, by which I mean like the way we talk about the game, the way we that the game is designed, and then the way that, that people play the game, and how all those things feed into one another. He's using it to talk about how that situation or that the, the wordplay, I guess, for each of these games shifts slightly. And I think that that mm -hmm. like really kind of shows off the, the uh, ability of the method. Sadly, kind of gives us only the first couple games in the series. Um, he, he gives us some ideas about what the reviewers said, which is basically like, it's a glitchy game, it's top-down, the controls are bad, um, but it's interesting, <laughs> right, um, mm -hmm. in a general sense. I think like six people made that game or something, um, so that makes sense. And it, came out, it came out in the mid-90s, mid to late-90s. Um, mm -hmm. But he says what really like blows Grand Theft Auto up and like makes it into a cultural phenomenon is Grand Theft Auto 3. And the thing that really mm -hmm. does that is the open world. 
Yes. Um, and so Grand Theft Auto 3, you know, if you've played that game, kind of like small open world game comes out for the PlayStation 2. And its whole kind of pitch is like, you can do whatever you want to do within this world. And that inaugurates this kind of like thrill and panic at the same time. Because the mm-hmm. thrill is like, oh, you can, you can just drive around and do whatever you want to do. You can like do taxi missions, whatever. But also this panic of, um, you know, you can just go and shoot civilians all day long if you want to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that kind of dominates the discourse around it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so one of the things that ends up happening, uh, Paul notes, right, is that you start getting basically divergent interpretive communities. Yeah. Right, people who play the games versus people who sort of hear about the games. Yeah, or people who play the games in just radically different ways, right? You know, because yeah. I, I think, and this is not even a distinction that he makes, right? But but he he reads through some reviews, and some of those reviews are like exactly what I was saying, this kind of thrilling open worldy kind of thing. But some people are like, oh, this is this is a I forget the person he quotes, but it's the the idea is that. You know, saying that Grand Theft Auto is a game about shooting people or whatever is like saying that uh, Goodfellas is a movie about guns, mm-hmm. right? Like that—that that, that is not accessible to the experience, or it doesn't speak to the actual experience of the thing. But to be fair, you can play Grand Theft Auto and skip through every uh, cutscene, like every single one of those things. And you can just go and shoot people constantly. It, it would be this smorgasbord of violence if you wanted it to be. Right. I mean, that was like, that was my first experience. Of yeah, for Theft sure. Auto 3, like it's a thing. Right? Like going over to a friend's house and it's like, Hey, here's this new game. You want to try it? And I'm like, Oh, I can blow up everything. Great. Yeah. I could put in all these cheat codes and just like use the, <laughs> the rocket launcher all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like a billion percent. Yeah. Or you can really like slowly and methodically move through it and play this kind of like, you know, rising up through the ranks crime story that, yeah, is patterned off of, like, knockoffs of knockoffs of Scorsese films, right? Like, easily. <laughs> and that's not to knock it, but that's what it is, you know? Uh, like, you know, just bald facts. Um, and so, yeah, it's not even just that there's divergent interpretive communities, but it really is, like, the the game is designed in such a way that the variability of what play is really can create entirely different worlds of phenomenal experience. And so then how do you talk about it? (laughs) I was going to say, so then question for you, um, what, what role is humor, uh, performing here then? Because that's in the title of the chapter. Yeah. He has a section on humor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, even though I've read this book, I cannot replicate that for you off the top of my head (laughs) because I definitely did not, because it's only a little piece of it. It's like, yeah, it, it literally is a section called humor matters. It goes over two pages um and uh i yeah i don't i mean i can tell you what the argument is which is like that humor uh creates coherence around certain things if you find something funny it can generate a particular kind of like little rhetorical situation uh and if you don't that also creates a different thing i don't know how that actually applies to this game though Right, no, that was sort of, it was just a question that I had because it was in the, the title of the chapter and I expected, I mean, there's the humor studies is is a thing, yeah. right? Um, and I expected that to come in a little bit more here because there's also, like, once you get into humor studies um, and comedy studies, there's there's a lot of uh, sort of interesting stuff that happens with um, essentially, like, how how is humor and irony used to circumvent um the players like 
instinct or like not the player but like sort of the audience's um instinctive ethics yeah let's say yeah sure right like um because humor is definitely like a kind of social bonding mechanism but at the same time um someone's always the butt of the joke yes and so it's kind of like okay like that's just it's it's one of those places in this book where it's like i would i would follow the chapter up into a point and it's like i would keep pushing right like i wish this kept pushing because i think there's something in, um interesting here about kind of um essentially like the subversion and containment of conservative impulses in the grand theft auto games yes and maybe that just has to do with like it would require a lot more close reading this is something we talked about at the very beginning of the th- of the book right like if this book spent longer on close reading just say you know one game over the course of a chapter as opposed to doing two or three or if it were just all about world of warcraft right that's another way of going Mm -hmm. i think that we would get a lot more fine-grained demonstration of of how wordplay works but yeah i mean i think this argument is interesting this is on page 89 paul writes in the case of gta humor makes the game more memorable as a whole but its presence changes how many people how many how players remember the game because of the humor, a player is more likely to remember laughing and less likely to remember a killing spree. In this vein, it also disrupts the perceived coherence of a message, as satire may provoke laughter on many sides, but the cost of those laughs is a lack of sustained rhetorical coherence. And he's like citing someone in humor studies um, to do mm-hmm. that. Um, which is which I think is true, right? You know, I think that that for every instance, and this is, you know, a debate all the way up through Grand Theft Auto V, for every instance of, like, satire that happens, or of, of just even using humor in a, in a more general sense, there are moments where it just seems like they are doubling down on something bad and gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, un- unnecessarily, like, makes uh, people the butt of a joke who don't deserve to be the butt of a joke, basically. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's kind of as far as we go with it. Yeah. Um, the next chapter is EA Sports and Planned Obsolescence. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one that we'll cover pretty quickly. I can actually summarize this in a sentence. Uh, this chapter is just all about uh, how does EA Sports convince players to buy the same game every year? <laughs> yes. Right? Uh, and, like, we can get into the specifics of that, but we don't really need to because... We know that it happens, and we probably, if you're listening to this, you know why it happens, right? It's because, like, there are new players who join the teams. There are upgraded mechanics. Um, There's all this marketing that suggests that, like, this next one is better than the previous one because it has some greater degree of fidelity to the actual experience of the sport. Um, And also, like, licenses and exclusivity uh, play a huge part in this in terms of keeping the market essentially dampened for EA. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, if you're interested in this, it's a good chapter to read. Like, it, it, it has good, but it, it is just applying the method to answer that exact question that, that Michael's saying. So, mm-hmm. um, And then the next chapter is one that uh, I think we both agree does uh, wordplay pretty well. Like, this is probably the chapter that goes the furthest to... Um, making that making the method uh really explicit and earning the method's name <laughs> 100% because this is this is a place where words and design and player response all neatly align around like a term and the term mm-hmm. necessitates design and the design necessitates player response right like 
it, it is very coherent here to me what wordplay is. Right. Um, so essentially what happens uh, is that at one point, Jeff Kaplan... Um, Overwatches Jeff Kaplan. Yeah, Overwatches Jeff Kaplan. <laughs> uh... <laughs> uh what was the context of this? He's, he's uh, on a panel was, at like BlizzCon 2 or something. I don't yes, think it's yes, called yes. BlizzCon at this point. But it's basically BlizzCon 2. And he is mm-hmm. talking about the um, the changes in design that have happened that when you complete dungeons, you are still able to get gear out of it. Like despite not having a full complete or whatever. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, so I don't even think I said the name of this chapter. I'm not sure if I did, but it's called Rearticulating Rewards in World of Warcraft. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, he mentions, Kaplan mentions, uh, what he calls quote unquote welfare epics. Yes. Uh, which is his term for kind of, so epics in WoW, right? Like if you've played any sort of like fantasy-ish looty game, um, if you played a Blizzard game, uh, you know that like there are always, there are always like tiers of items and tiers of equipment. Um, that like, you know, something's common or it's rare, blah, 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 blah. And then we have like epic equipment, right? Epic items that are, uh, really hard to obtain and super rare and probably like quest relevant or, you know, something like that. Um, and Kaplan, uh, talks about, uh, these rewards that you can get for, not nece- as you put it, not uh, not necessarily having a full complete. Uh, you still get some sort of epic loot from this, um, and he calls them welfare epics, mm-hmm. which ties into for people who maybe are not in the United States or or uh, just don't have the context for it. Right, um, we have like the idea of the welfare state, which is that that theoretically everyone is taken care of by the state to some former capacity. This is like developed in the post nineteen forty five world. And then the notion of welfare, um, and, and you know, welfare state, I guess, is, is part of it. Anyway, in, in the latter half of the 20th century, the word welfare takes on this um, ideological component of, like, the nanny state giving you things for free that you don't deserve. So, for example, Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan bringing up the, or, or uh, kind of creating or, or, or uh, pushing the trope of the welfare queen that has all of this racial and reproductive and, you know, uh, social, (laughs) um, um, uh, social prejudice built into it. All of that is being neatly transported into welfare epics, into this discourse of welfare in World of Warcraft. Right. So, um, right. So Kaplan is really, uh, drawing on some loaded ideas here and the community responds uh, pretty strongly um, and they respond by saying yeah we agree yeah yeah right like that's that's kind of the the harrowing part of this <laughs> is um if you dig into the rhetoric of welfare right so kaplan has this disdain right these are just welfare epics um but on the other hand uh there is a, a critique of welfare as a practice as like a state practice uh that paul gets into here uh where welfare is essentially the the band-aid on the wound of of the capitalist state right uh if you are in a capitalist state that is going to take care of you then you are less likely like you you in some like 
well, like this argument that welfare in some way kind of subjectivizes you as a particular kind of capitalist or like subject to a particular like form of capitalism. Um, and uh, Paul kind of notes that one of the things that welfare epics do, like these quote unquote welfare epics, is uh, they could function as a way for more people to play WoW, because if there is like a kind of guaranteed way to get um, epics and you want to get more epics than, I don't know, sell them or do whatever it is you want to do with your epics in WoW, uh, suddenly you have a fairly accessible um, way of doing that, right? So there's this kind of weird tension here between the players who are seeing this thing as, as uh, essentially a sop to other players who aren't as committed to the game as they are um versus the the impulse of the the designers to make a game where everyone can kind of get something that they want out of it yeah right um and one of the things that this ends up doing is it conflates uh the idea of labor and the idea of play because the entire notion of a welfare epic uh you know pivots on the the assumption that whoever has it right did not do the correct amount of work to actually get that reward that is called epic yeah right? and that there's a valor valorization of a particular form of labor that is uh, you know you gotta organize your guild and you gotta become mm -hmm. real good at the game and you gotta like learn all the patterns of the bosses and you gotta make sure you don't die to trash and you gotta get your you know, multiple uh, raid groups going on, uh, you know, on off nights or whatever, so you can make sure that everyone gets geared up equally to then get to the final boss of, of the thing, right? That there's this immense amount of of intellectual and time and um, uh, just like raw, you know, click labor <laughs> that's going mm -hmm. into this thing. And then if you, if there's any way to achieve that level of like aesthetic command, which is really what it is, right? Or, or um, um, like statistical command of the game. If there's any way mm -hmm. of getting there that doesn't require that labor, then that is illegitimate and bad. Right. So, yeah, I mean, and that's kind of what the chapter is about. Yeah. And so so for him, like, this is wordplay, right? Because the, the word mm -hmm. itself does... It, the rhetorical situation here or whatever, the, the operization, as I said before, the operalization of rhetoric here is happening in all these places simultaneously all at once it's not as if the um, the word creates the entire situation it's not as if the design creates the entire situation it's not as if the players create the entire situa situation it's all these things triggering kind of in sequence and and at the same time imminently to one another i guess i should say um mm -hmm. you know kind of self-same when all those things happen then it creates this kind of circuit of rhetoric that's happening that that really only strengthens i mean i think what's interesting about this is that i don't think there are any instances of wordplay that are in this book where something diminishes because of it mm -hmm. does that make sense or, or like something becomes less less powerful yeah no i think that's i think that's a safe thing to say yeah how i would put it in this chapter is like what we see really well uh, here for wordplay is how the like almost offhand way that Kaplan is just like welfare epics just suddenly activates this entire network of associations um, that begin to like reinforce and marshal each other for all these different arguments uh, 
regarding like the balance of this game essentially yeah. uh, but it's not just about the game because it's necessarily drawing on uh this long political context and so on and so forth yep. so yeah okay that's a good chapter um, if you're interested in that yeah. and if you're interested in the other world of warcraft stuff then chapter eight is also about that Yep, chapter eight is about theory craft and optimization. In much the way that I really don't like MMOs, I also hate theory crafting. Like, it is just a completely alien way of interfacing with a game to me. I cannot imagine theory crafting at all as fun. Now, to be clear, the other thing I hate about theory crafting is I hate what it's called, because to me, theory crafting is like what I do when I'm trying to out like maneuver a plot in a movie or something <laughs> sure. or in a book that i'm reading mm -hmm. right if i'm reading like when i was reading homestuck right like i was one of the theory crafters in in the particular like homestuck space that i did a lot of my discourse in because i had a very good command of the plot and i could like link things up and be like here's what i think is going to happen mm. That's fun to me. However, WoW theory crafters are like, let's go do some statistics to see how good these builds are. Yes. And then complain to the developers when we think that they are either too good or not good enough. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, but that's really what the chapter is about. It's like, how does that happen? Right. And basically, uh, the argument is like, this is, this is, in and I mean, he's not wrong, right? It is interesting because you suddenly have this in, not really new, but kind of like, unique discursive community that grows on top of the game um of people who like speak a particular kind of language they have their own slang they have their own conventions and like guild leaders are looking for theory crafters they want to bring theory crafters in because they have things that they need theory crafters to look into <laughs> um and so on and so forth so that's what that chapter is about um and that also ties into the ninth chapter uh, which also ties into his, I guess, most recent book, which is Balance in Meritocracies. Yep. And this chapter is essentially like, what is the idea of balance, and how does this influence the ways that uh, designers and players talk about and think about games? Um, and the answer is, like, balance is... He, he Specifically, he calls it an ideograph, which is a term that he pulls out of, like, I think, legal scholarship, um, which is... Uh, a a so ideograph it is a word right graph it's something that's written but it is also an idea it is a word that sort of pulls in a a lot of associations a um it quote mobilizes a larger cultural belief or concept to shape the ways the audience conceives of a subject area um if you it's also in some ways it's much like zizek's idea of the sublime object of ideology mm. you can cut that um <laughs> right but essentially right uh what happens with balance is it becomes because balance is kind of taken as a given by players and de developers both um everyone is in in similar to theory crafters right everyone is kind of like constantly work looking for like the perfectly balanced game mm -hmm. perfectly calibrated and in the process uh this actually weirdly this um touches on some of the stuff that Mackenzie Work ends up writing about in Gamer Theory, it obscures the very unbalanced material circumstances that uh, all players and developers are coming from. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, it's kind of like the the uh, the game's meritocracy becomes a kind of false meritocracy that obscures the material conditions of game development and play. Yeah. Smokescreen. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um... And then the, the third part of the book is the concluding chapter, which is just called Words, Design, and Play. Um, 
and we get what is probably one of the most perplexing sentences in the book for me uh, on page 161, quote, Game studies addresses play and design, but does not offer wordplay strength in addressing the role of words. So there's a weird thing that happens here where I guess wordplay is not supposed to be taken to be game studies. Yeah, I I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess uh, game, that means game studies so far. Maybe, yeah, game studies so far. I, was, I mean, if it's not game studies, then I guess we're changing the name of the podcast. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so as most concluding chapters uh, do, right, we have that like moment where it's like, here's here is what this method that I have put forward does that the field so far is lacking. Um, and you and I have both made our opinions on this pretty clear. I think that we we think that there are good elements to wordplay, but we also question kind of wordplay's coherence or even the 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 usefulness of wordplay as the label. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I think the analysis here is great. I I think yeah. that the that all like the pieces here. I just like. You know, as a method, I don't think I'm picking up wordplay as, as a thing to do. Um, but I do think this has, like, some really productive things. Like, obviously, reading this in tandem with um, uh, Ready Player Two or reading this in, mm-hmm. in conjunction with the James, I think, would be really productive. Um, and and I think this has, like, the analysis of World of Warcraft in particular is really good. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you, you almost wish that it was a book about World of Warcraft, um, just so we could dig a little bit more into these specific exam- examples. Um, yeah. But it also, I don't think we said this before, but it really reads like a dissertation, and so it could be that this is the a wider variety of objects was necessary for that dissertation to kind of go. Um, so you know, that's part of it, too. But yeah, I, I uh, what you picked this book, Michael. What did you think about it? So I... I mean, I picked this book because I like words. I like them a lot, and I wanted to see what was happening with wordplay. Um, and I don't think I would give it a, a thumbs down. Um, and I would give it maybe, like, a little bit of a thumbs up. It would really depend on what... If I was going to recommend this book to someone, it would be... You know, it would depend on what that person was looking for. Um, and so one of the things that I think that this book can be very useful for is uh as and as i mentioned earlier right threading this needle of uh, essentially right like the ludology narratology thing um that's something that we haven't mentioned explicitly but i think that's one thing that's trying to be reconciled here by saying like well okay we have all these great models for talking about like the ludology uh of, of the game right the the persuasive rhetoric or what have you of of the game and its design um but now I kind of want to step back and see how the culture um, influences those things. Uh, and I do not think that um, I would necessarily be like, oh, you should do Chris Paul's wordplay, but you should definitely cite it if that was a thing that you wanted to talk about and if you wanted to talk about that particular move. Um, because I think other books have... have uh, made that reconciliation much more neatly. Um, but I still think that that is a thing that happens here um, and that is useful in and of itself. Yeah, I agree. I think I give it a thumbs up. I think that this is a great book if you were looking at a model to build on to get at similar yes. things. So are you trying to look at the circuit between... I, th- I think when he's talking about design, he's really talking about like 
the the mechanical inter- iterations that are happening. But I think this is a great mm-hmm. book if anyone who wants to build or write an article about or write a book about or whatever to build upon if you want to talk about the way that designers talk about something and then the way that players talk back to them. I think it's a really great yes. book to, to kind of uh, help push that project along or just to be in conversation with regularly because, you know, I really like Ready Player Two. I'm, I'm on the record about that in a million different places about liking it. But it really is about how designers think of players and not the other way around. This book mm-hmm. is trying to do both of those things. I think in some places it's doing it more than others, but this is a great place to like get all the pieces arranged so that you can then do specific work in another object that you care about mm-hmm. that's not World of Warcraft or whatever. Yeah, actually, I was just one thing that I want to mention, mm-hmm. like uh, something that I was thinking as I was reading kind of the this entire book. It would be really interesting to to plug like modern streaming culture into this and see what shakes out. Yeah. Right. Because it's suddenly it's not just players and developers. We've got this like weird middle ground of of the influencer. Um, and I think that could be really fascinating. So if anyone's looking for an article idea, there you go. Michael, what's our next book? So our next book. We are going to be reaching way back into the past. We are going to be grabbing Cybertext by Espen Arseth. Uh, I, I, is, that, is that a cyber that's, sound? Yeah, is that what that's that was? the 90s. Oh, okay. Yeah, 1997, um, which is quite like it. I mean, obviously, we've read things that are older, but I don't know. It's post-Hamlet on the holodeck. But just barely. But it's... Yeah, um, and pre Galloway, I guess, mm-hmm. is where I where we would slot that. So yeah, um, Espen Arseth, Cybertext: Perspectives on Ergodic Literature. So we will talk about that next time. We're gonna get in it, y'all. It's gonna be a big one. Woo! Uh, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at sign Warren is dead. You have anything to plug? Nope. Okay. You can find me at C Kunzelman. You can find all the Range Touch products on rangedtouch.com or at rangedtouch on Twitter. All kinds of different stuff. You can check out Sword Coast Coast to Coast, uh, an actual play podcast that we do. You can check out uh, uh, Michael and my upcoming show, Too Much Future, which is about the Fallout games. It's going to be on YouTube. That should be the first episode will be coming out right after this will come out. Uh, it should be coming out at the very beginning of September. So check an, take an eye out for that. Take an eye out for that. Keep an eye out for that. <laughs> Just pop it out. Lay it on the on the desk and keep it aimed at your computer. Well, yeah, screen. I guess to keep an eye out, you do have to take an eye out. You know, mm, People are always true. telling you to keep an eye out, but they never say put that eye back in. Uh, put an eye back in for that one. Um, and that's it, I think. I think that's all we have to, to, to do. Next month, we'll be doing Cybertext. And, um, Michael, what's the catchphrase? The social is predicated on its exclusions. There we go. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>